0: We're gonna kick it off with a story about about a good rabbi who moves from New York City to Lincoln, Nebraska, and discovers a man who really ends up being more than he thought he was. I was uh, married to uh, Julie and we went out there uh, together. The culture is really different than the East Coast. Uh, It's a little slower and people are more reticent in that part of the country. But overall, it's a really pretty nice place to live and I I really didn't have any cultural adjustment to make. Julie and I had purchased a house and we were moving into uh, the house and unpacking one Sunday morning and we had a uh, a call from an unknown person. I picked up the phone and said hello. And he said, uh, you'll be sorry you ever moved into that house, Jew boy. And uh, I did call the police and and told them that I had received this threatening call. And uh, a few minutes later, a patrol car showed up and police officer took a report. And he said that he thought he knew who might be behind it and uh, mentioned the name Larry Trapp. Larry Trapp had been uh, notorious in the community as a white supremacist, uh, hateful person. The police gave us instructions in a way, which was pretty troubling. They said, you know, tell your kids not to go back and forth to school in the same pattern. And a couple of days later, we received a package in the mail filled with about 50 or 60 items of racist material, brochures, white power organizations, and There was one picture I remember in particular of Dr. Martin Luther King with a gun sight imposed over his forehead, and the caption was, Our dream came true. I think the most chilling of all, there was a business card in that package that was a Ku Klux Klan business card that had on the back of it, The Ku Klux Klan is watching you, scum. And that was pretty scary. So I called the police again, and they came and took all this material and confirmed that they thought it was Larry Trapp. After a while, I started thinking that it might be a good thing to try to contact him. And so uh, I got his phone number from a friend of mine who worked for the phone company. Uh, my plan was to see if he would talk to me. Maybe some good could come of it, or maybe I could just get it off my chest and say, leave my family alone. I dialed his number. When I called, I got an answering machine, and the uh, the answering machine had a uh, anti-ethnic diatribe against Asian people. And it just went on and on and on about how the Asians are just ruining America and they don't deserve any better than the blacks and uh, the Jews and all of that. And uh, it was disgusting. And then I decided, well, I'm just going to call and leave messages for him. And I became, uh, I guess, a little bit uh, obsessed with the idea of contacting him. And so I'd call. And when it said, uh, you've reached the Ku Klux Klan... White Power, if you're interested in membership, leave your number. And, and I would leave a little message, which I started calling Love Notes. One message was, Larry, there's a lot of love out there and you're not getting any of it. What's wrong with you? And i hang up. Another was, uh, why do you love the Nazis so much? They would have killed you first because you're disabled. Larry Trapp was a double amputee as a result of advanced diabetes at a young age who lived his life in a wheelchair. After several months of calling, I I realized that I was doing a pretty strange thing. I called every Thursday afternoon at about 3 o'clock. I had appointments with children for bar mitzvah lessons at 3.30, and so I called just before that. After a while, I think Larry Trapp figured out who was calling him. And finally, one day, Larry answered the phone. And he started yelling and screaming at me. Why are you calling me? You're hassling me. I can't say what he said for a family radio program, but I said, I don't want to hassle you, Larry. I just want to talk to you. And he said, What do you want to talk about? And I said, Well, I heard you're disabled. I thought you might need a ride to the grocery. And there was a dead silence for a long time. He finally came back on and said, "Uh, I've got that covered don't call me anymore. This is my business phone. And uh, Larry Trapp still kept getting calls from me at three o'clock on Thursday afternoon for another couple of months. And finally, on a Saturday evening, the phone rang. I picked up the phone and and he said, is this the rabbi? Is this the rabbi? And I said, uh, yes, it is. Is this Larry Trapp? And he said, yes, it is. I said, what can I do for you? He said, I want to get out of what I'm doing, and I don't know how. And I said, would you like to talk about it? He said, yes. I said, well, I'll come over. I know where you live. So I hung up. My son said, Dad, you can't go and see this guy. I said, yeah, I'm going to go. I'm going to pick up some chicken or something and, and go break bread with the guy. He said, you can't do that. When a Nazi wants to have you over for dinner, he means it literally. (laughs) But I did call a friend of mine before going. And he said, what are you, crazy? It could be an ambush. I said, look, if you don't hear from me by midnight, send the police. Do you know what I mean? And Julie and I got in the car and we drove to his house and uh, knocked on the door. And he opened the door. He's sitting in a wheelchair with a Mac-10 automatic weapon in his lap and a shotgun hanging off the corner of the wheelchair and a pistol in his lap as well. And I said, oh my God, we're dead. But instead, he reached out his hand and I shook his hand and he burst into tears. And he began taking these rings off his fingers and they were two swastika Nazi rings. And he handed them to me and said, take these away. They've caused me nothing but trouble all my life. And we talked and talked about what he had been doing and why he wanted to get out of it and the sort of childhood he had had, hiding under the bed so his father wouldn't beat him, which I'm convinced brought him to where he was in this hateful business. A constant tale of violence and racism and hatred and bigotry. He was doing this to try to make himself okay with his father who was that kind of person. But he did it with a vengeance. I mean, he had gotten himself elevated to a position of authority within the Ku Klux Klan. He was called the Grand Dragon of Nebraska. Strange. So Larry Trapp uh, determined that he was gonna live a different way that night. And um, he asked me to take away all this literature and paraphernalia that he had around the house. Larry Trapp, he was not very old, but he had been sick a good part of his life, and he wasn't feeling very good one day, and he uh, was beginning to have kidney failure. Uh, Julie said, you know, maybe uh, we shouldn't abandon this guy, you know, he's all alone in that apartment. What do you think about inviting him to come live with us? And so we moved him into uh, what had been our daughter's bedroom. And he was still functioning, you know, he was still living, but living like with a family. Uh, Julie actually took care of him. Uh, She gave up her job in order to take care of Larry Trapp, who needed some care and attention. It was uh, an unusual time, to say the least. During that time, Larry Trapp started bugging me about wanting to become Jewish. And I said, well, Larry, come on, you grew up a Catholic, why don't you just go to church? And he said, no, I had a miracle in my life and it came from Judaism. I said, no, Larry, it came from you. I had friends in the Christian ministry and I tried to palm him off on them, you know. And uh, Larry kept insisting he wanted to study Judaism. Well, we did have a ceremony uh, of conversion at the synagogue, which Larry had been attending, by the way, and he adopted Judaism. Lived the rest of his life in my house until one morning at about three o'clock he died. He lived in that house for nine months. It's almost like he went through that whole cycle of uh, birth again, and he died a better man than he lived. I was happy for him. His funeral took place at the uh, temple filled with mourners because Larry had done a lot of work in that nine months to try to make amends with people. And he was on the phone constantly calling people and apologizing and telling them he's sorry he hurt them. He spoke several times at the high schools against racism and he became a better kind of celebrity than he had been before. I felt like a member of the family had died. I think everybody in my family felt that way. You know, like everybody has a weird old uncle. He, he had become that guy in my family, you know, and well-loved. Thank you, Rabbi Weiser, for sharing this story. The good rabbi now heads up the Free Synagogue of Flushing, where he continues to teach tolerance. That piece was produced by Anna Sussman, Rita Daniels, and Renzo Gorio. You are listening to Snap Judgment, and to hear more stories, visit snapjudgment.org.